You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. In the late 1970s, early 1980s, through the 1980s, it seemed as if Christian publishers could not pump out books on the subject of Satanism, demonism, and the kingdom of darkness fast enough. And by the time it was time for me to go to Bible college, all of the books that had hit the Christian market and become so popular with Christians were popular amongst the students as well. And one of the first books that I read on the subject and my fascination with demonism and Satanism was a book by a man named Mike Warnke. The name may be familiar to some of you. Mike Warnke was a supposedly a Satanist turned Christian, turned comedian, turned Bible teacher. And uh, his book called The Satan Seller, I think it was called, was sort of standard fare for all of the students at Bible college. It, it got passed around the dorm and everybody was reading it. And I remember one evening I was reading it. I was at Deidre's uh, parents' place and they had gone into town. It was later at night and it was getting on in the evening and they hadn't come back yet. And I was laying on the couch reading The Satan Seller, getting dark outside. And there was a cat that was a small cat that was curled up on my chest and I was petting the cat and reading through the book. And I got to a section in the book that talked about how demons can possess animals and how animals can be demon-possessed and even demonstrate demon qualities. And I'm reading there, petting this cat and reading through the book, no word of a lie, right in the middle of a paragraph about animals being demon-possessed, the cat jumped up on all fours and sunk all of its claws into my chest and began to hiss. Now, this is no exaggeration. So I figured that what I would do was put into practice what I was reading about in the book. So after the cat finished sliding down the wall on the other side of the room, (laughs) I went over and picked it up off the floor and brought it back to the couch, and I tried to exercise a demon out of the cat. Didn't do any good. There was no improvement in the cat. I think that if Satan were to manifest himself physically, it would be in the form of a cat. That's how I feel about cats. After reading Mike Warnke's book, and by the way, Mike Warnke was later found out by Jesus People USA to be a fraud, and that didn't abate his, stop his ministry at all. It still goes on today. Um, After reading Mike Warnke's book, then I picked up other books by professional Satanists or previous Satanists like Rebecca Brown, not any Rebecca Brown that we might know in our congregation, (laughs) named Rebecca Brown. She was a former Satanist witch. And the thing that was fascinating about the books was that they offered to us inside information. You see, if you really want to know about Satan, you really want to know about Satanism and demons and how to deal with them, you need to ask a former Satanist. That's why Warnke's books sold. That's why Rebecca Brown's books sold. And so we folded up our Bibles and slid them off to the side and said, we're going to study Satanism. And so we cracked open all of these books by Satanists. And we read them. And who could put down Frank Peretti's books? Piercing the Darkness and This Present Darkness. Those became spiritual warfare manuals for us. We imbibed the principles in the books. And by the way, Peretti has since renounced all that he taught in those books. He actively actively teaches against the very things that he once believed and that were the manifestation of his belief in those books. 
And then there was the guru of all gurus when it comes to dealing with Satan and his influence. And, and if you really wanted to master all of the spells and the incantations and the prayers to get the devil out of all of the details in your life, because that's where he's at, he's under the stones and behind the bushes, then you needed to absorb Neil T. Anderson's books. You just couldn't live life as a Christian without almost memorizing entire chapters of Neil T. Anderson's work. The fascination that the church had with the demonic, I do not think today I even understand why it was that Christians were so fascinated with Satanism for almost a decade and a half. It has subsided today, and I'm very thankful for that. I'm grateful that we don't have to deal with that today. We're fascinated by other things, equally as unbiblical, but at least it's not Satanism and and demonism today. But the popularity of those books and the millions of Christians who imbibed the teaching from those books and tapes that represented the same sort of philosophy created in the church a mentality and a paradigm and a way of looking at the demonic and at exorcisms and at Satan that has more in common with superstitious mystery religions and voodoo witchcraft than anything biblical. And I imbibed it. And I had bought into it for a long period of time until I began to observe in Scripture what Scripture says about these things. And if you and I really want to get back to center and have a biblical understanding of these things, then we've got to come to grips with some things that are in the text that is before us this morning, and that is in Acts chapter 19. So you need to have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through verse 17. This happens in Ephesus. A few weeks ago I told you there were three encounters that occurred in the city of Ephesus that are sort of unique that Luke is giving to us. At the end of chapter 18 it was Apollos, that disciple of John the Baptist, that ran into Priscilla and Aquila, and they explained the Word of God to him, the way of God more to him more accurately. And he became a phenomenal gifted teacher, went to Corinth. The second sort of interesting encounter was with those twelve disciples of John the Baptist. They had been acquainted with only the baptism of John, were still waiting for their Messiah, those Old Testament saints, who once they got saved, then their salvation was attended with the same sort of spiritual manifestation that attended the day of Pentecost and Cornelius' salvation, that is the gift of tongues. The third interesting encounter in the city of Ephesus has to do with the seven unsaved Jewish exorcists that try and duplicate what the Apostle Paul was doing in the city of Ephesus. And friends, if you and I are really going to have a biblical understanding of demons and exorcisms particularly, then we've got to become very familiar with Acts chapter 19 because it really speaks volumes to us. In just reading it, verse 11, God was performing extraordinary miracles at the hands of Paul. Miracles, verse 12 says like they were taking his aprons and, and, and handkerchiefs from him and putting them on the bodies of the people who were sick and they were becoming well and demons were leaving them. And so just at the beginning in verse 12 and 11, you can see the subject matter that Luke picks up. Miracles and exorcisms. Now we're going to have a whole message devoted to miracles when we get to the last miracle in the book of Acts. Do you know how many miracles there are left in the book of Acts? There are three. Three miracles left in the book of Acts. After this one, one in chapter 20 where Paul raises to life uh, Eutychus, who was dead, fell out of the window and broke his neck because Paul was long-winded. We're going to get to that in Acts chapter 20. There was Acts chapter 28, verses I think it's 1 through 6, where Paul's bitten by a viper and he survives. That's a miracle. 
Then there is Paul performing all of these healings on the island of Malta after a shipwreck while he's waiting for the next ship to come into port that will finish taking him to Rome. So three more miraculous events. So we're going to have one message at the end of all of those where we're just going to deal with what were miracles. What were signs and wonders? What was the purpose of signs and wonders? Why were they in the New Testament? Who did them? What did they do? What function did they perform? Are they for today? But before we do that, I want to make sure that we look at each one of these three in their context. And so we'll get to them as we as we get to them. But today we're going to deal with Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 17. And you're going to notice Luke contrast for us genuine miracles that were happening in the city of Ephesus and counterfeit miracles that were happening in the city of Ephesus. And verse 11 and 12 is followed by verses 13 through 17 for a reason. It is to demonstrate the uniqueness of Paul, the uniqueness of his message, and the uniqueness of the Christian faith. Verses 11 through and 12 show us the genuine. Let's look at that. Read it again with me. Acts chapter 19, verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. Now, I want you to remember the context. It's been two weeks since we looked at it. Do you remember what comes in verses 8 through 10? It's significant. Do you remember what the emphasis was in verses 8 through 10? It was the Word of God. The Word of God as Paul taught it and preached it in the synagogue. Then the Word of God as the Jews rejected that Word and began to speak evil of the way. And then Paul left and he went and taught the Word of God in the school of Tyrannus. He did this for two years so that Everyone in Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now friends, it is significant that Paul, that Luke mentions Paul's miracles right on the heels of talking about him being the instrument by which the word of God spread through all of the region of Asia. Because I've said before that miracles serve the purpose of authenticating the message and authenticating the messenger. So who was it in Ephesus who was God's channel for revelation? Who was it? Paul. Who was it in Ephesus who was the man appointed as Christ's representative on earth? One of thirteen. Who was it in Ephesus that had that divine appointment? It was Paul. So it should not surprise us that Luke would mention the miracles that Paul performed after he mentions Paul's teaching ministry. It's a significant observation. The two are connected because the miracles authenticated the message and the messenger. Now, Luke says, God was performing extraordinary miracles at the hands of Paul. Let me ask you, what is an extraordinary miracle? Aren't all miracles extraordinary? Are there ordinary miracles? If it's an ordinary miracle, it's not a miracle, is it? If it's a miracle, then it's extraordinary by virtue of the definition of miracle. A miracle is something out of the ordinary. This is kind of redundant, isn't it? It's almost like Luke is saying Paul was performing miraculous miracles. As if there's some miracles that are miraculous. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. You see, what Luke wants you and I to see in the text is this. That even as far as miracles go, what Paul was doing in Ephesus was extraordinary. It was a step above ordinary miracles. If there is really such a thing as ordinary miracles... These were phenomenal phenomenons. These were miraculous miracles. 
When you compare them to the rest of what was going on in Scripture, in the New Testament, by the hands of the apostles, these were different. Phenomenal stuff going on in Ephesus. So phenomenal, in fact, that critics and skeptics and atheists and agnostics have a field day with what you read next. Verse 12, So that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from the body, from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. What kind of extraordinary miracles? Well, Paul had in his belt a sweat rag, a little towel that they would wear in those days, and they would tuck them into their belt. In that region, when you're working with your hands and working out in the marketplace, you work up a sweat, and the sweat would just pour down on your face. You'd pull out your towel, and you'd wipe the sweat off your face, and you'd stuff the towel back in your belt. That was a handkerchief. That was an apron. That's the word that is used. Acts chapter 20, when Paul's greeting the church, the elders of the church in Ephesus, he tells them, you know how I labored with my hands night and day. So we know Paul was working. Luke says that they were taking these sweat rags that Paul would use, his aprons, his towels, his handkerchiefs, that he would use to wipe the sweat from his face and his neck. Somebody was taking these and they were rushing them off to sick people and placing them on sick people and the diseases would leave them and in the case of those who were demon-possessed, the demons would leave them. Now what Luke does not tell us is if Paul was aware that this was going on or if he endorsed this going on. Do you notice that? Luke doesn't mention that. Uh, I'm, a, I'm kind of inclined to believe that somebody was doing this without Paul's knowledge. I'm inclined to believe that somebody in Ephesus had such confidence in his healing ability and in the ability of God to work through Paul that they were thinking the same thing that that lady thought when she reached up and touched the hem of the Lord Jesus. If I can just touch the fringe of His garment, I'll be healed. Somebody was thinking the same thing of Paul and they were sneaking away his sweat rags, I think, and placing them on the bodies of people and God was using that faith and God was using those instruments to effect a miracle. I don't think Paul endorsed this. I don't get the impression that he endorsed this. This is something that was completely out of the ordinary. And in the case of evil spirits, the evil spirits would leave them. Somebody... It shouldn't strike us as too fanciful of our, of, of, for this to be happening. We shouldn't credit this to Luke's fanciful imagination. Oh, Luke is just making this stuff up about Paul. That's not it at all, folks. God is free to heal. Listen, God is free to heal any means He wants, any way He wants, any person He wants. God is free to do that. He is free to bring healing to anybody. Because somebody would say, well, Jim just doesn't believe in miracles. That's not true at all. I believe that God is the greatest miracle worker of all time. And I don't believe that miracles don't happen today. That's not the issue. The issue is, does God use miracle workers? God is free to heal anyone, any way, any means, at any time He wants. Just like the lady who reached up and touched the hem of the garment of the Lord Jesus. And she was healed. And Jesus said, who touched me? I felt power go out of me. The disciples said, we're standing in a crowd and people are pressing in on you on every side, pushing you around. Everybody wants to touch you. You ask, who touched you? How are we supposed to keep track of who touched you? But then this lady came up to the feet of the Lord Jesus, trembling. She had such faith and such confidence in His ability as a spokesman for God that she thought, if I can just touch something He wears, I don't even have to touch Him. I don't even have to get His attention. If I can just touch something that He's wearing, I'll be healed. There was another occasion where Jesus didn't even have to be present to heal the centurion's servant. 
And the centurion said, Lord, I am a man under authority like you. You just speak the word. Don't even bother coming into my house and my servant will be healed. Jesus said, that's faith. And from that moment on, the man was healed. God is free to use any means He wants. Remember back in Acts chapter 5? They brought people on pallets out into the streets so that the shadow of Peter might pass over them. And God used that to heal people. He's free to do anything He wants. So look what Luke says. They were bringing the handkerchiefs and the aprons from Paul and they were placing them on people. The spirits were going out. The diseases were leaving them. And I want you to notice a a distinction here. Do you notice how Dr. Luke distinguishes between diseases and demon possession? Because there are some in our day who say, if you're sick, it's because of a demon. Not all the time true. Possibly. Sometimes. Maybe that might be so. But notice how Dr. Luke distinguishes between diseases and demons. In the case of those who were just sick, the diseases left them. Now for those who were demon-possessed, the spirits left them as well. There's a difference there. I want you to notice a couple things since we're talking about genuine miracles here and exorcisms. I want you to notice something about exorcisms. Read verse 12 very carefully and notice how exorcisms are called miracles. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Verse 12, what kind of miracles, Luke? Well, so that handkerchiefs were brought from Paul's body to the sick and the diseases left them and evil spirits went out. Do you notice how exorcisms or the casting out of the evil spirit is called a miracle? Do you see that in the text? What kind of extraordinary miracles? The healing of the disease and the casting out of demons. That, those are extraordinary miracles. Not the only place in the book of Acts that Luke tells us that exorcisms were miracles. Turn back to Acts chapter 5. I want you to look at a passage there. Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. Now, from the middle of verse 12 to the beginning of verse 15 is a parenthesis. Read verse 12. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. Verse 15. To such an extent that they were even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits. And they were all being healed. What kind of miracles, Luke? Healing of the sick. Exorcism of demons. Those are miracles. Luke tells us they're miracles in Acts chapter 5. Look at Acts chapter 8 with Philip. Beginning in verse 6, Philip is down in Samaria, spread there by the persecution that Saul of Tarsus, later Paul, would begin. 8 verse 6, the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case, what kind of signs, Luke? Verse 7, for in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Acts chapter 5, signs and wonders done by the apostles. What kind? Healings, exorcisms. Acts chapter 8, signs and wonders were done by the apostle, uh, by Philip. What kind of signs and wonders? Healings and exorcisms. Acts chapter 19, we're back there now. 
Signs and wonders were done by the hands of the Apostle Paul. Extraordinary ones. What kind of signs and wonders? Healings and exorcisms. Do you see the pattern? Three times in the book of Acts, we are told that exorcisms are miracles. Spirits, evil spirits, and exorcisms are only mentioned four times in the book of Acts. Once in Acts chapter 5 that we just looked at. Once in Acts chapter 8 that we just looked at. Once in Acts chapter 16 that most of you would be familiar with, with the demon-possessed slave girl who followed Paul around in Philippi. And Paul finally got so annoyed, he said to the demon, come out of her. And it came out that very instant. It's the third time. And then the fourth time is right here in Acts chapter 19. Four times, evil spirits and exorcisms are mentioned. Three of the four times, Luke specifically tells us they're miracles. Three out of the four times. And all four times that they're mentioned, it is an apostle or somebody closely associated with an apostle like Philip who performs the exorcism. Jesus demonstrated His power over disease and over the demonic to authenticate His messianic claims by healing and casting out demons. Jesus gave that power to the apostles as His representatives to demonstrate that their message was the same as Christ's message by exercising over demons and over disease the power to heal and to cast out demons. Now what in all the world would give you the idea that we could exercise a cat? What in all of the book of Acts would ever give us the idea, all of the New Testament for that matter, that exorcisms should be happening today and that we should be doing it? Do you know that nowhere, nowhere in the New Testament are we ever commanded to exercise a demon? Nowhere in the New Testament are we ever instructed to do so. Nowhere in the New Testament are we ever told to do so or even how to do it. No how-to manual. You say, well, Jesus told the apostles or the disciples how to exercise demons. He taught them to do it. That's right. They're apostles. I don't have a problem with that. The apostles never tell us how to do it. They never command us to do it. They never commission us to do it. They never tell us how to do it. They never encourage it to be done in any fashion. Notice, my friends, that exorcisms are called miracles in the New Testament. Second thing I want you to notice is who did the exorcisms? God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of everybody in Ephesus. No. By the hands of Priscilla and Aquila who were in Ephesus. No. By the hands of Apollos. He was a mighty teacher of the Word. No. Luke specifically tells us God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of whom? Paul. Paul. Is that the only place we're told that? Acts chapter 5, or Acts chapter 2 verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and wonder as many wonders and signs were taking place, listen, through the apostles. Acts chapter 5 verse 12. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. Acts chapter 14, verse 3. In Iconium, it says that the Lord was attesting to the word of His grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands, Paul and Barnabas. Acts chapter 15, verse 12, at the Jerusalem Council, Paul, in demonstrating the truthfulness of his message, the veracity of his gospel, explained to the Jerusalem Council how God had testified to His message by granting that signs and wonders be done by His hands and by the hands of Barnabas. Acts chapter 19, verse 11, at the hands of Paul, 
God was performing extraordinary miracles. Now somebody would say, but Jim, it doesn't say that only the apostles did miracles. You're right, it doesn't. Because that would be wrong. There are three notable exceptions to it. Stephen, Acts chapter 6. Philip, Acts chapter 8. And Barnabas. Do you notice something about all three of those men? Commissioned by, appointed by, or associated with apostolic ministry and apostolic message. There are exceptions. There are three notable exceptions. I don't have a problem with that. And I'm not making the claim that only apostles did miracles. I'm making the claim that over and over and over again, Luke tells us it was at the hands of the apostles. That's the general rule. Are there exceptions? Yeah, three of them. And all three of them were associated with apostolic ministry and commissioned by the apostles. It was done by apostles. Not everybody performed miracles. Now, do you think that exorcism should be taking place today? Maybe there's somebody sitting here, and I, honest, honest with you, wouldn't even know who it would be, who thinks that they have the power to cast out demons or thinks that they have been commissioned to cast out demons or, or deal these blows to the kingdom of darkness by exercising demons from people or from cats, from animals or your dog or your cow or your horse or whoever, maybe your children. Maybe there's somebody here who thinks that that's your job or that's your commission. If that's the case, then I would just say, after the service today, I would like to meet with you because we have some people here who need healed as well. And I would like you to heal them. And then we'll go down to the hospital and you can clean out Bonner General Hospital and heal everybody in there. And if that goes really well, then we'll go down to Coeur d'Alene. You can demonstrate to me that you have the ability to perform signs and wonders, which are physical healings and exorcisms. That's what signs and wonders are. Exorcisms are miracles. And listen, if we are to be performing and if we have exorcists among us today, then I would expect that those same exorcists could heal the sick and raise the dead because that's the type of miracles and signs that the apostles were performing. We don't have that power. We haven't been given that authority. Now somebody would say, and there are some among us who would say, Jim, being an apostle is nothing special. Having apostolic power is nothing special. I mean, after all, if God did that through Paul, then he can do that through us, or he'll do that through us. And that's exactly what a group of men in Acts chapter 19 thought. There's nothing special about Paul. Nothing special about his power. And did they ever get a learning? Chapter 19, verse 13. What does it say? It says, but, that's a contrast, but also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place, they were traveling around, they attempted to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, they were doing this. <clears throat> now, nowhere in all of Josephus' records and nowhere in history do we ever read of a Jewish chief priest named Sceva. So one of two things is happening here. Either he was a member of the chief priestly family, but not actually a chief priest, or Luke is using the term chief priest, and he's kind of putting it, if he had quotation marks in those days, he would have done that. He's a chief priest. In other words, this was a title that he took to himself. He was Sceva the chief priest. In this, he had this, doc, this title that he brought on himself or sort of a self-proclaimed chief priest. And, and sorcerers would do this all the time, much like modern-day doctors and lawyers who are quacks will take the title themselves. They get their certificate off the back of a Cracker Jack box and they put it up on their wall and, and all of a sudden they're a medical practitioner. 
Same thing happened back then. He would take the title to himself. It would lend credibility and make him appear like a spiritual expert. He's the same type of man as, as uh, Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. Do you remember him in Samaria? He's the same type of man as Elimus, the, the Jewish false prophet in Acts chapter 13 that Paul confronted in the court of Sergius Paulus. He was the type of sorcerer, trickster, little stage show magician who would travel from house to house and city to city putting on his little magic spells and his incantations. And apparently his seven sons followed in his steps. They were seven Jewish quote-unquote exorcists, not believers. The fact that they weren't believers is really irrelevant to the story because you can't say, well, they weren't believers. That's why they couldn't cast out the demons. No, that's not Luke's point. That's irrelevant. It doesn't matter whether believers or not. The point is that not everybody was doing this. Take these seven sons of Sceva, for instance. They want to follow in Dad's steps, so they're moving from place to place, and they get to Ephesus, and they are amazed at Paul's ability to do this. They're amazed at Paul's success. I mean, they've heard of Paul, and they know the, the, the name that he names and his method of doing these little, of little tricks and these little sleight of hands and And they're thinking Paul is one of them, one of these traveling speakers who comes to town with a message and he authenticates it with a little smoke and mirror show. And Paul has become so popular and so well known that they think, well, we'll just take Paul's method. We'll just take Paul's phrase. You see, when they would go to a city, if their little incantation, a little conjure didn't work, they were always looking for something else to add to their repertoire to sort of enhance their credibility. Just like Simon the sorcerer, when in Samaria, when he saw that the Spirit came upon the Samaritans by the laying on of the hands of John and Peter, what did he do? Hey, I'll give you some money if you give me that power to do that. Well, Simon was just doing what he'd always done. See a good trick and offer to pay the, the trickster a little fee of money to show them how he did it. That's what these guys do. Well, Paul's having success naming the name of Jesus, so they go from house to house, and they walk into this one house, and there's one little single solitary man sitting there, and he's possessed of a demon, and so they give out their little incantation. We adjure you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And I think they must have known that something was wrong right away. See, friends, they made two key mistakes. First, in their thinking, they thought that Paul's power was just a trick. Paul claimed to be an apostle. Sceva claimed to be a chief priest. It's just a trick. So we'll use Paul's trick. We'll use Paul's name. And we'll use the name of the man that Paul preaches. So we adjure you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. But there was a second mistake that they made. Not only did they think that Paul's uh, power was trickery, but they thought that Paul's power could be their own. In Bible college, Now, I wasn't taught this by the Bible college, but I was taught this by the books and the tapes that I listened to before I started reading Scripture to see what Scripture says about this. When I was in Bible college, I was taught by the books and tapes that I had been listening to that the secret to dealing with Satan is to use the right words and the right phrases. You see, if you're going to conduct an exorcism, and this is what I did with the cat, you have to exercise them in the name of Jesus Christ. You can't just say in the name of Jesus, because there are many Jesuses. And you can't just say in the name of Christ because there are many Christs. So you have to be specific or the demon will sort of slip out of your little loophole by getting away from the authority that you're praying down upon it. So you have to be specific and say, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of it immediately. And if you really want to be biblical, then find another animal, not the cat that's on your chest, to cast the demon into. Preferably a herd of swine. And you have to pray down the blood of Jesus, whatever in the world that means. Pray down the blood of Jesus over the situation. 
rebuke the devil. Bind the devil. And you've got to use your little spells and your incantations and your specific ways of praying things in order to really tap into that mystical power. Now, what is the difference between that and what the seven sons of Sceva were doing in Acts chapter 19? Absolutely nothing. They thought that they could use Paul's methodology, whether it's laying on of hands or whether it's sending you a little piece of cloth in the mail that will, when you touch it, you'll bring healing or or you go up and you touch the TV screen right at the right moment and you'll be healed. You, you touch it when the televangelist touches the camera and the healing power comes through the airwaves and it'll heal you for your faith. Same methodology. What is different? Nothing. They thought it was a trick. They thought Paul's power could be their own if they just used Paul's method. So they named Paul's name. They give Paul's incantation. We adjure you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Look at their rebuke. And I think this is the first sign that something was about to go dreadfully wrong. Jesus, we know. Gnosko. It means to know by experience. Jesus, we know. How did they know Jesus? Jesus was their creator. Jesus was Lord. They knew him. They believe and they tremble. Jesus, we know. Paul, different word, we have heard of. We know Jesus, and we've heard of Paul. Who are you? That's cold. And we haven't even heard of your name. Who do you think you are? We're familiar with the Son of God. We are familiar with his apostles. You, we do not know. You have no authority over us. You have no power to tell us anything. And listen, friends, it has nothing to do with the fact that they were unsaved. It has everything to do with the fact that they were not the Son of God and they were not apostles. They had no commissioned authority or power to tell a demon anything or to do anything to a demon. Because every exorcism we see in Scripture was in connection with the ministry of the Son of God or the ministry of an apostle. Every single one of them. Never do we see it outside of those contexts. Jesus we know. Paul we've heard of. But who are you? And then that one man in whom was a demon manifested supernatural strength and he jumped on them. Now I wish I could have been a fly on the wall and I wish I could have seen them unload all of their incantations and their spells and their words and their phrases that they'd ever used to control a demon. In those one instances, they were clamoring for windows or doors or rooftop latches or anything to get out of that home. They must have said every word and phrase and even made up some incantations on the spot as this one man in whom was a demon subdued all seven of them and look at the text he stripped them naked and wounded them, and they went running out of the house. Now, it's difficult to keep that quiet. Look at verse 17. Everybody heard about that. Yeah, seven men flee from a house naked and wounded, whooped up on by one man inside the house. That's difficult to keep quiet in a community. Before long, everybody's going to hear, Hey, did you hear what happened to the sons of Sceva? Talk about stage show. You should have been there the day we were out mowing the lawn and these seven guys come running out, bleeding and whipped and their hair all matted up and they're naked. What was the results? Fear fell upon everybody. Now, and the name of the Lord was magnified. 
Now, how could the name of the Lord be magnified when the name of the Lord had just suffered such a humiliating defeat? Hadn't the sons of Sceva named the name of the Lord when they tried to exercise the demons? That didn't work. It was utter failure. And the demon whipped up on them, stripped them naked, and sent them away naked and wound them. One man sending away seven of them. What an utter failure and a public failure. How is it that the word of the Lord, the name of the Lord, could be magnified when it had failed so miserably to accomplish the end? How could that happen? Because it did two things. Number one, it set apart the Apostle Paul as unique. Because now everybody in Asia and in Ephesus knew this man speaks for God. Nobody else exercises the authority that this man exercises and demonstrates the power and the authority that this man demonstrates. And so Paul's message was elevated. Paul's word, his teaching was magnified, and that magnified the word of the Lord. Because all of a sudden, everybody knew he's a genuine article. He's not just some trickster. Second of all, not only did it set apart Paul as unique, but it set apart Christianity as unique. Nobody in Ephesus, nobody in all of Asia could ever think that Christianity was just a stage show. Nobody could ever think that it was just another religious bag of tricks. Nobody could equate Christianity with quackery. Why? Because Christianity had been forever elevated in their eyes far beyond any form of quackery or mysticism. Far beyond just a set of incantations or phrases that you utter to manipulate your way. And so the name of the Lord was magnified. Why? Because the name of the Lord was rightly used. Not as a trick. Not as a means to your own end. Not as a means to exalt yourself. See, friends, these Jewish magicians made two mistakes. They thought that they had power that they did not have. We do the same thing today when we think that we can manipulate Satan, that we can control the forces of darkness. In the end, we find that we're the ones being controlled and manipulated because we think that we're having some effect when we bind the devil or exercise a demon or do all of this manipulating of the spiritual hosts. And the exact opposite is the case. We are being manipulated into thinking that we're actually achieving something when we're not. Do you want to deal a blow to Satan's kingdom? Preach the gospel. Present Christ in all of His glory and the gospel in all of its power and splendor. Because the gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation. And people who are demon-possessed, if you ever run into one, do not need an exorcism, do not need a power encounter. What they desperately need is to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light of His dear Son. How does that happen? Not through an exorcism. Through how? How does that happen? When the Word of God is preached and it comes with power to the heart and the Spirit of God applies the Word of God to the heart of the unbeliever and they are delivered from darkness. They are delivered from their sin. They don't need an exorcism. They need salvation. And we think we're giving doing a favor by casting out a demon or manipulating demons or whatever we're doing. Not doing anything of the sort. They need salvation. That's their desperate... You want to deliver people from darkness to light? Give them the Gospel. Pray for them and give them the gospel. And do so until they die or they get saved. One of the two. That's how you deal a blow to Satan's kingdom. Second mistake that they made, not only did they think they had a power that they didn't have, but second, these magicians thought that they could use the name of Christ for their own advancement. Now friends, here's my challenge to you this morning. 
Do you approach the name of Christ in the same way that they did? Do you think that because you put a Christian symbol on the back of your van or on your work truck or on your business card or or in your email that all of a sudden that will gain you some standing or credibility in the eyes of the Christian community and in turn give you business? Do you use the name of Christ only so far as it advances your cause? Did you come to Christ because you thought you were getting a cosmic bellhop who would heal all of your diseases and serve you? And Do you view Jesus as just your blessing dispenser? You go to Him every morning, you say the right words and the right phrases, and out pops your blessing for the day, and hopefully a prayer a day will keep the devil away? Is that your view of Christ? Living in a free country tends to poison the church that is in the free country because people in the free country come to Christ not for salvation from their sin, but they come to Christ because of what they think Christ can do for them. He'll heal my marriage. He'll control my kids. He'll bless my business. He'll increase my bank account. He'll heal my illnesses. He'll deliver my mom. He'll make life better. Did you come to Christ for salvation from sin? Or did you come to Christ because you think you got yourself a servant? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word and for what it teaches us. And even though we have focused upon a very a very dark subject of sorts this morning, we know that Your Word is magnified in the midst of our understanding our enemy and how we are to treat him and how we are to respond to him and to the attacks of the devil. We pray, Father, that You would give to us the grace to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and to stand firm, having done all of that, to stand And to stand for truth, and to stand for your word, to trust in your word, and to know that you have gained us the victory. And even though the opposite looks like the case many times, we know that in the end, our enemy is vanquished, you are glorified, and your name will be magnified when we know truth, when we apply truth, and when we tell that truth to others. Thank you, Lord, for your glory. Thank you for your goodness. And thank you for delivering us from the kingdom of darkness and translating us to the kingdom of your dear Son, which is the kingdom of light. We give you thanks in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.